You got your mixtape in the back? Oh, okay. All right. Mm. Never know what's going to go on here. Um, one of the things that um, even had me, like, with allowing E to kill it was just his initiative. Um, we've been talking about how to... Um, utilize all the arts, all the forms of ministry. And looking forward to somebody who's sitting in the chair saying, yo, I heard what you said. I have something that goes along with it. Now, it won't be that easy for everybody else. He gets the award for being the first. Because um, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want that pressure of if what you think goes along with what we're saying doesn't go along with what we're saying, we don't want you being mad, like, would you let Eric do it? And I'm better than Eric. Because um, I know somebody's going to be thinking that, though they may not say it. But uh, then we'll have to have an eight-mile battle and let E come in here. And, nah, I'm just kidding. But, uh, yeah, so please, as you hear things that's going along and you're part of the fellowship, uh, definitely come to us and let us know. Say, yo, I, I, I looked ahead a couple chapters. I noticed that we're going to be, and um, I have a, you know, a song or I have a this or a that. I have a skit that, that I think would beautifully complement the message. And then we'll get a chance to evaluate it. And then, um, Lord willing, God allow us the privilege to be blessed by everyone's contribution in the body. So uh, let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that it's another day. We didn't come up with it. You did. And we thank you, Lord God, that you've given us the permission and the privilege uh, to arise and uh, to walk about your earth and enjoy it. Um, man, Lord, the world. We're, we're aware that as believers, we sleep on you. So we know the world is oblivious to the fact that uh, you, the God with eternal power and goodness and grace, um, you're the reason why our days light up like they do. And um, the reason why bad days aren't worse. And so, God, uh, on this Mother's Day, uh, we are praying that you will get glory. Um, we've sought to, with uh, through song and now through scripture and through just uh, generic exhortation, we've sought to bring attention to you. There are many here who are visitors, uh, young and older, and we're praying that um, you will do what no human persuasion can do, and that is you will open people's eyes and hearts to the beauty of Jesus Christ, uh, give them uh, a heart of belief, a heart of flesh, and allow them to walk away, Lord God, uh, clinging to Jesus Christ and his cross as their only hope for not only living in this world, but living beyond this world. We pray it, God, because that's what you left us here for, to seek the peace of the city and to see those who are here come to faith in Jesus Christ and spend an eternity enjoying him forever. So, um, God, right now, as we turn our attention to the scriptures, give us a mind and a heart and a desire to hear the scriptures in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're still in John, and the beauty of John is John has one purpose, that people who sleep on Jesus Christ would stop sleeping. 
embrace him as what they need. I'm so I'm almost annoyed at how aware I am of the fact that Jesus Christ is not attractive to this world. Every now and then I look at videos every now and then I turn on the radio. I want to hear the heartbeat of the culture. And after listening to the radio and looking at the videos, it becomes clearly apparent that Jesus Christ is not on the radar, especially not of pop culture. And if pop culture gives us any insight into the majority culture, Jesus Christ is nobody special. Then we come here and he's all we're talking about. And sometimes I'm frustrated at the gap between where I just left when I was peering in and where I am when I come here. My only hope is that there are others who think he's more to be made a big deal about. Other people who know Jesus Christ is worth you perking up, splashing water on your face. Because there's something about Christ that, you know, we get sleepy when it's time for Christ. And unless you like him like that. It's something about the Bible that we get bored. And so I was thinking, man, can God make people who light up at the thought of him and who get excited at the mention of his name? And so we like John's book of the gospel because John's whole thing is I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus before he became a man. I want to talk about Jesus once he became a man. And I want to talk about how he killed it on earth while he became a man. I want to talk about how he didn't just die, but he arose and he sits on the throne and he offers forgiveness of sins and salvation to anybody on the planet who believes that he is who he says he is. So we've been in John. And so today we want to continue chapter 13. I was like, we don't have a Mother's Day uh, message outside of this message on Mother's Day from chapter 13 of John. That's good. All right, mothers. Anthony Irvin was a career criminal, arrested eight times for multiple offenses, weapons, robbery, assault. He did this for a spree of about 1987 to 1996. Early in October 1996, Anthony thought it was business as usual. He meets this man named Courtney Beswick. Courtney Beswick happened to be a blind man. Uh, uh, Anthony comes to Courtney and says, give me your money. And after repeatedly demanding the money from the blind man, Anthony commenced to attacking the blind man. Only to find that this blind man grabbed him with a kung fu grip (laughs) flipped him over his head, fell on his, the the, the attacker fell on his neck, broke his neck, and died. From the onlooker's point of view, at first it was hard to figure out who was the victim and who was the victor. Sometimes when we look, we think somebody's a victim and they're really the victor. Sometimes we think they're the victor and they're really the victim. What we're going to talk about today is a classic case where John 
wants you to know, though Jesus looks like he was the victim, he really was the victor. The beauty about the passage today is because it's real simple. Uh, it probably won't be long. But this passage, as I sought to say now, I can just talk about Jesus because it is a it's a it's an extreme passage because it deals with somebody you're not going to just run into every day. You're, we're not going to just run into a Judas called the son of perdition. We're not going to just run into a Judas every day. This passage talks about Jesus Christ in a way that I was looking for a way it was going to apply to our lives. I know we need application. Lo and behold, it struck me that. There's the what of this passage and there's the how of this passage. I'm going to go through the what, but then I want to focus on the way or the how because it convicted me and I have a confession to make. If you have gotten to know me within the last two years, if you already knew about me, but since I've been back from seminary, I've been around and accessible more than I ever have been. If that's the place where you spent most of your time with me, I have a confession today. You've met a different me than in times past. And sadly, sadly for me to say, you've met a disappointing me. And I'm going to explain why. I just want to be transparent with you. Over two years ago, I came back from seminary with plans to get it in. I've been spending the prior seven years anticipating the day I was no longer in school over here and school over there. Philadelphia was on my heart from the beginning, but I went to Lancaster for two and a half years to finish a Bible education with Philadelphia on my mind. I left Lancaster with Philadelphia on my mind and made a stop and said, Oh, no, we're not going to Philly yet. We're going to Dallas, Texas. Spent four years in Dallas, Texas with Philadelphia on my mind. I came back as graduation neared. I said, yeah, Philadelphia is here. No more schooling. I'm not going to any other places. I'm going to embed myself in Philadelphia because Philadelphia was on my mind. And when I got here, I faced something that threw me for a loop. And it's beautiful the way it ties in with our passage because we're going to see Jesus Christ respond right. And I'm admitting to you, I have not responded right. Today, we're going to look at probably one, probably one of the most intense periods of Jesus's life in terms of human relationships. Jesus Christ is going to address the fact that he knows he's going to be betrayed what will you do when somebody jerks you? What you feel betrays you, disappoints you, and comes at you in a way that makes you feel like, dag, and I put so much into this relationship. I have been the victim of one who's responded improperly. And so for the last two and a half years, and I didn't know it till I started working on this passage, I've been bitter. And haven't recovered. I've been wounded. Haven't recovered. I don't want to trust anymore. And didn't know it. I've been shabby with making new relationships. Because to me, to this day, didn't think it was worth it. All because I ran into something similar to this. And so today I want to focus our attention on the close of chapter 13, 
and look at Jesus, the victim or victor, and then apply it to our lives. Pastor E left off at verse 17, which reads, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I, uh, I send receives me. And whoever receives me, uh, excuse me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to tell you all what's going on in this passage. Then I want to show you why I lit up and why it exposed me for who I've been. Basically... All the gospel writers, we have four of them, the gospel writers pick and choose what things about Jesus they thought was helpful for their people. If you were on the block, if you went to the block and everybody thinks that they're a gangster, you may not choose to talk to them about the fluffy side of Jesus. You may want to talk to them about the warrior side of Jesus. You may want to go to them and tell them about the Jesus who, when demons see him from afar, they drop to their knees and cower because you know demons can beat everybody else. They just can't beat Jesus. And on the block, everybody things they can beat you and so they need to know Jesus is not the sucker you're not gonna just come up to Jesus and just chump him so you may want to tell them about the Jesus who made demons cower but then there are the people out there who are wounded who are affected by their sin they seem to be depressed and they just want to know that God would forgive them and so you don't want to come to them and just talk about the wrath you may at that point want to talk to them about the Jesus who sat with so-called sinners and he used to uh Accept uh, people who other people who looked at them, the more religious people said, uh, you don't want to mess with them. That's the time when you may want to focus on that. Well, John, his whole thing is my readers sleep on Jesus Christ. The church and Jews at that time, the synagogue, were, were clashing. So uh, Jesus, uh, uh, John wanted to be able to make sure you felt Jesus as the one who's worthy of all your trust. Because at that time, the synagogue was putting a lot of pressure on the Christians. And so Christians were like, dang, should we be trusted in this Jesus? And so John picked and chose the things that would make you say, yeah, this is God who came down. Matthew said, yo, wait, I'm talking a lot of Jews. You need to know that this is David's son who actually is slated for the throne. John says, oh, no, no, I'm not talking to Jews. I'm talking to more than just Jews. I better talk to people about this is God. So today he picks and chooses this this idea of Jesus. And John's whole purpose is to show you Jesus looks like he's the victim, the victim of a sinister plot, the victim of a lot of interrogation. Every time Jesus turns around, he's having to get out of a trap that's set for him with his wisdom. John says, I know he looks like he's on the attack. And now we get to a place where Jesus is about to be betrayed. Somebody's about to turn him over. Jesus says, guess what? It's going to work. He's going to turn me over. Guess what? The authorities are going to catch me. Guess what? They are going to beat me. Guess what? I am going to die. But guess what? I'm not the victim. I'm a victor. Now, the beauty of this is. We're going to see how he deals with the person who's going to betray him. And the first thing I want to look at is how Jesus Christ 
demonstrates that he's a victor and not a victim by how he sees things. That's the difference between victors and victims. They see things differently. Watch this. Jesus Christ says in 17, uh, yo, now disciples, do what you're supposed to do. But I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread lifted his heel against me. The first thing is he sees realistically. As a victor, he can see things as they are. He doesn't have to front. We live in a day where people will front in the name of keeping a crowd. Everybody here, this is your year we here. Now, that's not realistic that everybody's year is this year. But people don't make any distinction. Jesus says, hey, but I'm not talking to all of you. He sees realistically. We live in a day where people will say anything, but it won't be realistic. A healing service where at three o'clock power from on high is going to zap. It's not realistic to time power from on high to the minute. But we have people who trick people with that unrealistic statement all the time. Jesus sees things realistically and he says, I'm not speaking to all of you. And the beauty about this is John places this here to let you know as a victor, even though Jesus is going to talk about a time when he's going to walk with the limp as though it were. Don't worry. Don't pity him. We were talking about Spider-Man. Um, I don't know how many of y'all saw it, but we all went and saw Spider-Man 3, a cluster of us. And uh, Pastor E is our resident comic book um, expert. He tells us about all of the comic book facts, you know, how it is, who it is, how they came to be, what their glitches are. And one of the things he said was to the benefit of Stan Lee, the originator of Spider-Man and so many, he said Stan Lee was the first one to create superpowers with blemishes or flaws or weaknesses. He says not only weaknesses in power, but weaknesses in character. See, it's one thing for Superman, you know what I'm saying, like put a little kryptonite around him, but what about if he's a liar too? See, that's, one is weakness in power, one is weakness in character. And so we began to see, he said, yeah, man, and, and you see that in superheroes. Somebody's got a temper problem. Somebody else has a lust problem. Somebody, I mean, they're not just weak in their powers, they're weak in their character. John is about to tell the disciples and, and, and people who trust in Jesus, A, you're going to see some weakness, but this isn't A, a weakness in character. Because lest you look at a weakness in character and nor is this a weakness in power. Because when he goes, we don't want to see people's faith wavering. And the victim says, A, if I was just a victim... I would start making up stuff just to try to get out of the situation. As a victor, I can be real. I don't have to lie. I don't have to flounder. Listen, he doesn't just see things realistically. He sees things scripturally. And that is the key to seeing things realistically. He says, listen, I am speak I'm not speaking to all of you whom I have. Cho I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You have to appreciate this. Now, this phrase, I know whom I have chosen could make you think Judas wasn't one that he had chosen. 
But in John 6, he says, I chose all of y'all, and yet one of you is a devil. What Jesus is saying is, yo, I'm so in charge of things, I can even choose the person who's going to do me in and not be done in. So here he comes and says, listen, I'm not talking to all of y'all who will be blessed if you do these things. He says, I know who's at this table. And somebody here is not on point. But I'm in control so I can be real. Sometimes you tell yourself, don't, don't, don't make them mad. Like, I know what's going to happen, but don't, don't, don't make things worse. No, no, I'll cut straight. He sees things scripturally. He doesn't just go on a hunch. Jesus is not just saying, I got a hunch. One of y'all is not right. And then looking around to see if somebody bites. The scriptures where he gets it from. He says, wait, the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This idea is a phrase that says uh, somebody close to me and in the in the Middle East, if you lift up your heel or it's a couple of ways that you can take this, either a horse that lifts up its heel ready to kick you. You know what I'm saying? Any other time, your horse is just chilling. But the moment he raises up, you're like, hey, oh, easy. And Or even in their culture, if a man was to lift up his heel against you, it was a sign that he was dissing you or he had contempt for you. And so Jesus says, wait, the scripture promised that and or the scriptures has documented another great king or another faithful servant was faithful to his boys and in his boys dissed them. So he goes back to Psalm 41 where David says, yo, a cat that ate my bread, a cat that sat around the table. Matter of fact, I hooked you up with the fish sandwich. <laughs> and then you stole the money because you saw when I went to pay for the fish sandwich, you saw why I kept my wallet. Then you take the wallet from the cat that went in his wallet to hook you up. That's the idea. Now Jesus is saying, listen, the scriptures. Now, sometimes when the scripture says to be fulfilled, it's not saying like prophecy. Like I predict that I'm going to go off the backboard, spin around the eight ball and in the corner pocket. And then it is fulfilled. Sometimes what the scripture means is something that's already happened is going to happen in a greater fashion. Isaiah chapter seven, uh, where Isaiah says, hey, king, this Virgin at that time, the word wasn't virgin like hasn't had sex before. This was the, the same term, but in the context in Isaiah, it was somebody who was marriageable age who was just a young woman. This young woman is going to be with child. He was talking to an actual young woman right there. He says, and when the child comes, you're going to say, Emmanuel, God's with us. That really happened already. But then fast forward to the New Testament and the angel says, yo, a virgin, an actual virgin who hadn't slept with anybody, not just a young woman of mar maritable age, will be with child. And when she gives birth, it'll literally be Emmanuel. God is with us. See, same thing that already happened. It just happens now on a more grand scale. Well, David, the Messiah, that was the little case, lowercase Messiah, had a boy that was close to him that ate his bread that lifted up his heel against David. 
And so David was like, I can't believe he did this to me. Now here we got the greater David or the greater Messiah going through the exact same experience. And he says, yo, this had to happen to just make bigger what took place back in Psalm 41, which when the when the psalmist said, yo, somebody real close to me just did me in. Jesus says, I'm so in control and I knew this was going to happen because the scriptures had to be fulfilled even greater than it was before. And yet I'm not the victim. I'm a victor. Look, he says here, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus's whole thing, like I told you about the, the Spider-Man piece, is if you need a hero, the last thing you need is a hero who's tied up and he needs a hero. One of the problems I didn't like about Spider-Man 2 was the people had to help Spider-Man. They helping him out, pulling him from getting thrown off a train. I'm like, man, if I need Spider-Man, last thing I need to know is I got beat down by one of the villains because some people on the train was helping you not get beat down by one of the villains. John says, Jesus did this to let them know. I'm telling you, any weakness you see from this point on, any betrayal, when they come and they handcuff me, when you see them beating me down because of what the guy who ate my bread and now was lifting up his heel or dissing me does, don't worry. I'm only telling you now in advance so when you see it, you won't say, oh, man, I can't believe it. Our hero needs help. You won't say that. I'm not the victim. You'll say, he told us this was going to happen. I can't wait to see since he is who he says he is. He's not the victim. He's a victor. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, the one receives the one who sent me. Listen, the difference between victims and victors is one in how they see things. Victims see things as a time for them to manipulate circumstances to get out of their, 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 their situation. Victors are in so much control, they A, see things realistically. In this text, the Lord Jesus saw things scripturally, not by a hunch. And Jesus Christ demonstrates his victorness in that he sees things missionally. Listen. Who, he goes right to this sending idea in the middle of talking about him being uh, delivered up, him being forsaken, him being betrayed. His mind is still on the mission. He says, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now he's got the disciples thinking beyond his individual dilemma, thinking to what's going to happen when he's gone and he says, oh, I'm back and I send you. And the reason why I say missionally is because how is it at this dinner Jesus is thinking about missions? In the middle of just a, a, a romantic dinner with his disciples, we need some people who are not so caught up in their own dilemmas that it makes them think they have the right to stop thinking the mission. Well, that was before I lost my job. I mean, I was thinking, I was trekking with you. I mean, I was, I was slated to do a whole bunch of missions until I lost my job. 
We need people who think, yeah, well, well, I was going to get with her, but then I've been going to this church and been reminded me about the mission. I started saying, wait a minute, the way she liked her and the way she want her and the way she has to, mm, she's dope, but she may not be good for the mission. Yo, did you hear? I was going to cop this crib, mm, but based on the mission now, I better rethink whether or not I cop this crib. Yo, I was going to take this job. But this dude started talking about mission, and I started thinking about how that job was going to conflict with mission. Wait, I was going to choose this subject in school. But then they started making me think mission. So I said, man, I make a lot of money over here, but that has nothing to do with the mission. Okay. Victims. Just think, I'm thinking about me, how I can get out of my situation. And I'm not talking about the legitimate concern for something bad's happening to me. I'm just telling you. And I'm going to tie it into, like I said, how I failed and played the role of victim and not victor in my own circumstance. But the idea here is Jesus, so in control of things, sees realistically One, everybody there is not included in what he's saying. Two, see scripturally. He doesn't just go off the cuff with, because I just could tell. He says the scriptures is involved in the way I see what's going on here. And three, missionally. And so, fellas, you know what I mean? Enough about me for right now. Let's 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 just shift your mind to what's going to happen when you continue, because the mission is not going to stop because of what you see go down in a few hours. Verse twenty-one. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, "Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me." So we're not talking about once again a lack of realism. Jesus is a human being. Uh, Pastor E was talking about what this means when it says the spirit was troubled. It's in a range of emotions. There's a stirring up of emotions that makes you, I mean, like where Jesus actually was visibly vexed by the reality of who was in his midst. (laughs) But I'm telling you, not only is the victor different from the victim in how they see it, uh, they're different uh, in terms of how they play it. Check this out. And this is what I, I, I like about it. Jesus is clearly troubled. He's not fronting. Verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus's bosom one of his disciples, that's his chest, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaning back thus on Jesus's chest said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered. This is that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Uh, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Listen to me. The difference between the victor and the victim is not just how they see it, but how they play it. 
Jesus Christ is clearly upset. But why is it that people didn't know who he was upset with? Why is it that the text says everybody start looking around and nobody said, uh-huh, mm-hmm, ask him if he's <laughs> What had happened for the last three years? I'm sitting up here imagining a Jesus who doesn't mind showing he's frustrated as the hour is here. Yet for the last three years, the Lord Jesus never gave wind that he had any beef with Judas. The last three years to the point where nobody suspected other the synoptics let us know that cats were starting to ask, is it me? Is it me? Even Judas said, is it me? I don't know if he just was deranged or what, or if that was just part of the front. <laughs> But everybody was like, not me. Is it me? Is it me? At the table, even when Jesus, the, the, the disciples who Jesus loved, quick comment about him. It's never explicitly said who the disciple is that Jesus loved. Uh, the Bible says that Lazarus was one that Jesus loved and Lazarus was a disciple. But the, Lazarus is not at this dinner. So uh, we do see the disciple that Jesus loved show up on several occasions, always close to Peter and always close to Jesus. And so it's believed that that's just John's way of identifying himself without trying to blow his own horn right there. You know what I'm saying? Me, the one that he loved. You know what I'm saying? He just says, you know, the disciple that Jesus expressed a real intimate affair with. In fact, at the table, the way they were positioned, John was in one of the places closest to Jesus. He more than likely was on the right. And he looked up and he was able to lean the way they, they did dinner. He would lean and he was able to say, hey, Jesus, who is it? And when you read this, you would think Jesus was just at the table like it's the cat that's going to eat the morsel of meat. But he probably didn't say that. He probably whispered back in his ear. It's the dude I'm going to give the, it's this, I'm going to dip this in there. I'm going to give it to him. And he dips and he gives it to Judas. Now, the way they're seated the funny thing is Judas is in the other place of honor. Judas is right next to him because he dips and another gospel says that he dipped with him. Now, the way they're set up, you would have to understand cats didn't just reach over and just thought, yo, let me get some of the, the morsel. Let me get some of the morsel. No, there was a, there was an order. In fact, Jesus at this meal was the host. He was responsible for giving everyone a piece of this morsel. So cats didn't just dip. They waited their turn. And you would give the person to your right and then the person to your left. So they don't understand the connection. They're not. They're thinking Judas is sitting. I mean, I don't know how Judas got there, but I mean, you know, because Judas wasn't part of the inner circle, the inner three. But Judas is in one of the places of honor that night. The, how they play it, Jesus, all this time, not showing Judas any kind of impartiality. Jude, Jesus, all this time, doing miracles in front of him, exposing him to a great amount of truth, loving on him like he loved the disciples. All this time, the one who was going to do him in is getting Jesus all the love, all everything that everybody else in the 12 got. Victims don't befriend their victimizers. Victors do. 
And he's sitting here he, three and a half years. And when he starts to, and he said it before, somebody's going to betray me. One of y'all is going to betray me. They still never thought Judas. He had the money bag. Nobody said, yo, come to think of it, I thought we had more loot than that. How they play it. Victims thrash around and make sure you get hurt. Victors play it cool. They tell you, if you're trying to rescue somebody drowning, often drowning victims just, I mean, just thrash. And they say, a lot of times you may have to wait till they're unconscious before you can rescue them because they'll hurt you in their panic as the victim. Two people in a pool, who's the lifeguard and who's the drowning victim? Is the dude treading water and looking up like, calm down, this is a rescue. Is usually the victor, <laughs> the rescuer. And the person floundering is usually the victim. Jesus playing it cool. And he says, see, I played it cool because I saw it coming. And you don't understand, this is what's crucial about Jesus Christ and John running it like Jesus is not a victim. Trust him. He saw the whole thing coming. Back when we were watching boxing, I know this is like a violent day, you know what I'm saying? We talking about fights and victims. And Back when we were watching boxing, an old fight, Trinidad and Mayorga, I mean, these dudes were going at it. And Mayorga was sitting there and, I mean, he... He was like daring him to hit him. So Trinidad was cracking him in the grill. My old was just standing there taking like pow, 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 come on again, pow, pow. And everybody was like, dang, Trinidad's in trouble. He just took his, his blows. And the commentator said, yeah, well, that's, don't be fooled by that. Anybody can withstand a blow they can see coming. Wasn't long before, crack. Boom. <laughs> 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 he didn't see that one. Jesus says, see, the reason why I can withstand what's about to take place is because I've seen it coming. The Lord Jesus Christ knew that this was the way that God wanted to get glory. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that as he says, so he dips him, excuse me, uh, verse 27. Then after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Jesus speeds it up, accelerates what's going in. Now, the interesting note that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. There's several speculations. I'm not, I don't believe that I'm skilled enough to know. Um, I can speculate along with people. Some people say, and this is a theological tension, some people say that as Jesus first honored uh, Judas by putting him in the seat of honor, as Jesus continued to expose him to truth, he washed Judas's feet. Remember, now he's saying all of you are not clean. This is why it's a theological tension. Some people believe that Satan didn't enter him until he took the morsel because in taking the morsel, it was a symbol that you were receiving God's salvation according to the Passover tradition. 
So as pe- just like re- letting your feet get washed was saying, basically, I'm receiving the cleansing. Um, it's believed that as soon as he gave him the morsel, Judas's resolve to not repent was solidified. And at that moment, Satan completely took over. Now, that you got to read up. That's a lot you read into that. But whatever the case is, at that moment, we're at the point of no return. Satan goes in and Jesus says, OK, it's solved. Now the show's about to get on the road. Come on, hurry it up. What you do, do quickly. Like, get this thing going and you'll see why. Because it says here, verse 31, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The reason why he says speed it up is because now we can get on to the glory I've been waiting for. Victors don't victims don't talk like now at the point where I'm being victimized is the point of my greatest glory. Jesus Christ comes and says, hey, it's not just the way I play it. Listen, Jesus had been saying it's not my time. It's not my time. Like my great hour is not going to be in me showing off and people saying, wow, look at him. The backwards mindset of Jesus Christ, which is why some of us, we sort of get a little afraid to, to walk and, and adopt what Jesus Christ is offering is the apex of what he was doing was in his crucifixion and then ultimately him getting up and ascending. So the Lord Jesus is sitting here saying, now is the son of man glorified. Now that he's going to go out and turn me in and I'm about to go to the cross. Now you're going to see my real glory shine. You're going to see somebody who's obedient, who welcomes their own end because their own end is the key to everyone's beginning. You have to appreciate Jesus demonstrating he's a victor and that he welcomes and embraces that which is injurious to himself because of the glory that it's going to result in. That's why people who know the Lord, you, you can't front on Christianity. Like you can be good and religious, but the like if you're just religious, you need things to be popping. You need things to be going your way. You need a God who's going to be adding stuff to you, who's going to be shaking down, pressing down, running over. That's what you need. But mature believers who see correctly, remember, who see differently and who understand God's economy of glory, they embrace stuff the average person wouldn't embrace. Paul says, yo, I get hype about my sufferings. I embrace my weaknesses because of my understanding of glory. Like, I don't know how to make this preach better. The people who... You got to be going through something and know, yo, just because you're going through something doesn't mean that you chose wrong. Just because you're going through something doesn't mean that God has left you down. Just because you're going through something doesn't mean that this is your end. It could be the beginning of the glory to be revealed. You have to think like, not like a victim. Woe is me. You have to think like a victor. Ah, I know what this is. Biblically, this is in the cards. We're raising up a people who it's the will of God till something goes wrong. Then they rethink, is it the will of God? 
Because for them, biblically, for some reason, no matter how many times the Bible makes it clear that this is the way all of the good stuff comes, it usually comes through the bad. Resurrection comes after a cross. Glorification comes after a descent. No matter how many times the scripture stresses this, the scripture does some stuff the scripture says, other stuff the scriptures belabors. This idea of glory after suffering is replete. And it doesn't always mean you're going to be nailed to a cross physically. It doesn't always mean you're going to be poor. It doesn't always mean you're going to have your lips poked out. But what it does mean is that you understand that sometimes the nearer to God you are, the more likely someone who ate your bread is going to lift their heel up against you. And Jesus is saying, look, this is me. I'm the one showing you. As Christians, like the, as we talk about forming Christians, we're trying to see Christians who begin to talk about this. Our glory and weakness. Nobody glories in weakness. Nobody speeds up their betrayal. Nobody sits in the seat of honor, their betrayer. Nobody lets them tag along and feeds them, feeding the rest and teaches them like they're teaching the rest and washes their feet like they wash the rest. All John is saying is, look at Jesus, clearly no victim. A victor. Different in how they see it, different in how they play it. Look, and even different in how they fight. Look at 31 again. We're going to read 31 to 35. Listen to this. Therefore, when he had gone out, Judas, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus has an interesting combat style right here. In, a, in a, a setting of hate, in a world of hate, Jesus Christ thinks, now that I get glorified, I want to start something new. Now, it's not new in that it just began, but he's giving it a fresh new beginning. And he says, I want to give you a new commandment. According to Leviticus and even in Matthew 5, you see that loving people is not a new commandment. Yet Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. He wants to combat hate, combat a world of strife and tension and suffering with a community who blows people away with how they love one another. Now, we into love. Everybody's into love. What we're not as into is loving one another. You think it's easy, but why is it that most people, they love the unsaved world more than they love the saved world? Now, granted, we, I've been hurt by church folk, and, da, 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 and we ain't talking about church folk. We're talking about people who are in the new community. 
He says, yo, this is how I'm going to fight this kind of thing by saying, y'all, love one another. A whole community of people who love and we're getting to the point where society makes it difficult. Church is not the place where you meet friends often. Church is the place you come. We all like somebody up there and then we go back to whoever we were with before. Somebody was commenting how even societally, I know crime and all kinds of stuff, but used to be a time where you built a porch and you sat on your porch and the whole community was just looking at each other. What's good, yo? What's good? And everybody played in the street, double dutch, hopscotch, and then you went back to your porch and you were just chilling. Now, no porches and it's patios. Patios that usually in the back. Instead of just a patio, now it's patio with a big fence. Yo, don't you look over here. I ain't going to look over there. I'm into my little world. You're into your little world. We go to church. What's good? You leave. I'm And you don't talk to the people anymore. Jesus says, that's not the idea I had to combat the kind of stuff that's going on right now. He says, my technique was to start a community and I command you. Don't just go out there to myself. I just love. I just love. I'm just a person of love. That's too generic. Who do you love? Now, he's not saying don't love people who are not in the community, but he is saying love people in the community. Most of us know we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church. That's what they mean. I mean, if a, a woman will tell you, but you're supposed to love her like Christ loved the church. Dudes would be like, but Doc, are you loving her like Christ loved the church? Everybody will get on you. When's the last time you've been rebuked for not loving believers that you're in community with as Christ loved his disciples? We're not convicted by just going to church and not having friends outside of that. Like, we're not convicted. We're not convicted that like we like our unsaved family members more than we like believers who God has brought into our life to be new community family members. Nobody's convicted. Yet on that night in which he was betrayed, the Lord said, I want to start something new. He modeled this when he was with his disciples, the new community that he was loving, having loved his own. He washed their feet. And his mom and his unbelieving relatives at that time, they didn't believe in him. And they came, his mom believed in him, but his, his brothers and sisters didn't. And he says, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are out here. He says, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Who's my sisters? Then he turned to that new community that he was ciphering with. He said, these that do the will of my father. Jesus says, when he looked at crowds, he says, I'm sparking something new. So I'm going to tell you right now, unless you hate mother, brother, sister, father, it, it, even your own self, you can't be my disciple because I'm starting something new. I'm making people have an unparalleled love for a new community of people that I'm sparking. I gave them their biological crew. I gave them this new thing and I want them to love them in such a way. That I'm not saying don't love them. I'm saying people shouldn't look and say, I can clearly see your love for them. I don't know about your love for them. You just sort of like them. I mean, I know you love your such and such. Because look, you went out and spent all this money. I know you love her. I know you love him. But I mean, I guess you like us. You still come every Sunday. Say, ah. He says, yo, this is a distinguishing mark. 
Like this is what it means to be a Christian. This is this is what God meant when he said, my church, I know we've we've sucked the life out of the terms. But he says, yeah, this is really what I was talking about. I got some friends in the all over the place that I meet. They're not really like they're not like friend friends, but we, we like each other. But when I look at where everyone places their trust and where they put like where they who they pick up the phone for and who they write and who they give the real email address to and who they and I'm not talking about like because a lot of y'all like, yeah, well, I know you ain't talking. I've been emailing you and calling you and like we ain't talking about an unmanageable onslaught, but we're talking about. But if you look at who's making it through, they ain't. Well, it's my mom. The dude I went to high school with and um, like we're talking about believers having access to me. Believers experiencing a love that lets you know Jack Nicholas loves the Lakers. Everybody knows it. You know why? Because when he does a movie film shots are built around the Lakers home schedule. He will not miss a Lakers home game. And cut. All right. Y'all, go back. I got to go fly back for a home game. Everybody knows he loves the Lakers. Spike Lee loves the Knicks. Everybody knows that. Ben Affleck loves the Red Sox. Everybody knows that. People who love stuff, their love is known. How many people are known for loving the people of God as the broad community? And then when you look at their individual communities, it's not just a cool bunch. I know you love, you love cool dudes who don't, who are not on point. I know cats who love, and I, everybody saved the day, so they, they get you with that one. He saved? What you mean? Just because he ain't like you? Everybody ain't got to be like you. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, how come when I see your boys, all of them look like this sh- suspect on their being in the community. <laughs> then, the, then there's those who, and then your, your, but you use, see, because, you know what I mean, Jesus said the sick need a doctor, not the righteous. I ain't called a righteous. And, and you use that to get out of having to be around believers, because in that community, that love, and in that community, the chance of being hurt, and in that community, the chance of being uh, checked, is greater. Victor, not a victim. Victors see it differently. They play it differently. They fight it. They fight this culture of hate differently. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. In the midst of all this, he sparked a new commandment, which is really just a fresh take on the explicit responsibility of his new community to have a love one for another as in a way that distinguishes them. Lastly, how do you keep this? How do you keep this? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Speaking about he's going back to heaven to prepare a place uh, and cats will be there. Either he's coming back to get them or they're going to die. 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Lastly, y'all, just 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 wrapping up. 
How are you going to keep? How is Jesus going to maintain people who see it right? Who play it right? Who fight in the right fashion? He wants to sober cats up and humble us from thinking that this is just going to be us keeping ourselves. And let me tell you why I say that. We were talking in our men's group. Where do cats go wrong after one success after another? Victory after victory after victory after victory breeds pride. You don't mean to. You just sort. It just comes up. It's part of, I think, the fallenness. And one day, God will remove it. But until then, here's Jesus, here's Peter at the midst of all this talk about betrayal, all this talk. And now he doesn't even realize he's scheduled for a type of betrayal himself. He doesn't even realize, but he comes out meaning, well, yo, I will die for you. And Jesus sobers him and says, "Mm -mm. matter of fact, funny you should mention it. (laughs) Out of all the people that could have said, yo, what's good? The cat closest to him could have whispered, yo, you know, what's good with me? Peter from across the table. Wait, but hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Why can't we go with you now? I die for you. Let's get it. Sis, pipe down. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. He sobers them, y'all. He sobers us. So how, how does all this tie into you and me? I just showed you that John just takes us through a point in time where Jesus Christ demonstrates a, just the, the, the exegesis says Jesus one day had to finally expose there's a betrayer in our midst. He never just says, Judas, you're the one. It shows you how he's been living. It shows you how Jesus Christ was in control of his whole life, who he chose after all night prayer meeting. He chose Judas and Judas was a tool of the devil. It just, he, Jesus Christ models something for us. He models what it means to be superior to your circumstances, to be superior to those who would try to attack you. And he does it because he sees realistically fallen world. He says, I know the men I have. I know there's somebody in here that's not on point. You and I, we get a chance to see this world as it is. In this life, you will have tribulation. In this life, realistically, it's going to be hard if you want to get it in with God. I'm looking at all the people out here I know nothing about. And I'm like, I wonder, would you say it's easy to be faithful and loyal to God or is it difficult? The cats in here that are plucking out their eye and, 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 and pulling out, cutting off their tongue and cutting off their hands will attest to you it's hard. I know cats that don't sit at the feet of the master know it's, it's, but it's easy to be disloyal. And so he says, hey, hey, listen, listen, I'm going to show you how I dealt with a life that was obedient to God with betrayal imminent. It was sure to come. 
And I was able to live like a victor and not like the victim. I saw it realistically. It was what it was. I saw it scripturally. It was so that the scripture could be fulfilled. I saw it missionally. I still was creating my crew who would take the gospel. He says, yo, I, I, I played it differently too. With my betrayer in my camp for three years, I took care of them. I exposed them to my best work. I ministered to them. I flashed my glory in his face. Says, but you know, I fight differently. I ain't like nudge him, you know what I'm saying, when we were out in the field. Like I could like put him in the headlock and just twist him like, oh, I just want to say, I just want to hurt you because I know what you're going to do to me. Mm-mm. I built up a community of love who would love each other in a world of hate. And I preserve anybody from getting so cocky that they think they're going to pull this off <laughs> by reminding them at any moment we all could fall victim to the Judas-like behavior. I was going to have you turn to Jeremiah 44, it's a passage where people basically accused that things were better when we were unfaithful to God than when we were faithful to God. People have always thought that. And that sometimes happens. When you let God go and stop being faithful to him, things get better in your life. Most people try to make you think it's the other way around. You ought to give God your life and things will get better. But a lot of times I gave God my life and things got worse. That's exactly what these people in Jeremiah 40, 44 said. And so since Jesus is used to betrayal, let it not be us. Let it not be us. I'm going to close with these, this encouragement. We have to get in the Bible, y'all, so we can see this world biblically and therefore realistically. We have to be mindful of our identity as the church so we can see things missionally and not just personally. We have to play our cards differently. We must embrace that which comes with faithfulness to God, even if it hurts. We must invite <laughs> that which is our demise. Saul told Jonathan, you crazy for helping David. That's the way you're not going to get the throne. <laughs> Jonathan didn't see it like his pops. He embraced God's plan, even though it meant he wasn't going to have the throne. Moses embraced Joshua as his predecessor, even though it meant, yo, if I raise up Joshua, that sure means I'm not going to be in the land. We play it differently. Jesus welcomed Judas in and didn't mess up God's plan by having fights with Judas the whole way through. <laughs> We're moving through John, y'all. And I hope that it's blessing y'all because Pastor Ian and I are not making stuff up. We, we take it as it comes to us. <laughs> we, we're in chapter 13. Guess what's there? <laughs> Jesus talking about his betrayer. And you and I are going to be betrayed. I started this by saying I failed. Rather than a victor as a victim, I'm, I've been talking. Every time I talk, I talk about how I've been done wrong. A lot of y'all have been trying to get with me, and the reason why you haven't been able to is because <clears throat> I've been weary of relationship. 
a lot of like a lot of times um I mean I rarely answer the phone now. I never used to answer the phone, but I really don't answer the phone. My my mailbox never used to get full. I'm, I'm confessing to y'all. I'm afraid that there's gonna be some other relational demand on the line. Because my relationships haven't yielded what I wanted them to yield. They didn't work out the way I wanted them to work out. So lately, the last couple years, I've been ducking relationships, ducking new responsibilities. I've been a victim. I've been playing it like a victim. And even though the mission says that I meet new friends and I have new relationships and that I do my pastoral functions, I, I, forget the mission, um, it hurts too much. And then there are probably some people that are part of the pain and I, I stay away from them rather than having them in the camp and still getting it in regardless of the outcome. I pray that you'll identify in your own life. Have you felt betrayed? Has anyone done you wrong? Or are you part of the crew that's doing God wrong, the Lord Jesus wrong? You're still in the seat of honor until it's too late. The morsel still comes to you until it's too late. And in closing, the Bible says that the gospel is God's invitation to all who are not in a relationship with him. And until you die, there's still a hope. At least from our vantage point, that's all we can see. And the gospel is, the offer is, the morsel is, that sinners who, dis, who are disloyal to the Lord Jesus can repent. You don't have to go through with the plans to leave God out of your life. You can turn to the Christ who's there and place your trust in him. And we're praying that today if you came here that that's what you'll do. There does come a point where it's too late. But as long as you have breath, there isn't. So if God is moving on your heart, we pray that you will turn. I don't care how young, I don't care how old you are. If the Lord God is moving on your heart, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ was put on a cross. Because after this betrayal, he said, now is the Son of Man glorified. That set in motion the most brutal beat down for sin that we know of. And we're going to be going, we're, we're headed toward that in the weeks to come, the beat down. <laughs> and we pray that you will not scream victim of your circumstances, but be a victor in your circumstances. Father God, we.